Hello, this is Neil from Deaf Left Pod, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 38. In this episode, we're going to be talking about my favorite Def Leppard album, Pyromania. Before I tell you about my special guest, I want to let you know that you can find me online at michaelsrecordcollection.com, on Twitter, at Mike's Records, and at Michael's Record Collection on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. For my newsletter, visit michaelsrecordcollection.substack.com and sign up for free. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this independent podcast at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For this episode, I wanted to talk a little Def Leppard, so I reached out to Neil Poole of the excellent podcast Def Lep Pod. Neil's show is humorous and informative, and it's well worth your time if you like Def Leppard's music. So let's get to my chat with Neil about his podcast and our longer discussion about Pyromania. Here we go. All right, welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I am uh, happy today to be joined by Neil Poole from the Def Lep Pod. Neil, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Michael, for inviting me on. Very much appreciated when other podcasters um, invite me on to their podcast. It's always really nice. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much. Um, lovely to have the invites. Where are you in uh, in the world right now? So right now I am in my daughter's bedroom <laughs> in Liverpool in the UK. Hence why I've got um, pink curtains behind me. Obviously, Michael, I'd normally have a much more masculine um, background when doing um, podcasting but now today um, daughter's bedroom Liverpool which is northwest of the UK mm-hmm. um, it's where the Beatles are from that's probably what it's best known for yeah yeah I, I expected Def Leppard tapestries behind you maybe some posters <laughs> <laughs> but no uh, this will do just fine um, I wanted to ask you about the Def Lep pod this is a a podcast dedicated to the music of Def Leppard as as the title would indicate how long you haven't been doing this very long no i've not been doing the Def leopard podcast for very long i started it last june and the reason it was started was essentially because i've always wanted it to be a Def leopard podcast um, and i was always looking for Def leopard podcasts and you can get rock music podcasts where they might do an episode on Def leopard and, and that's great but there was never anything to scratch that itch so I know it's a bit of an old cliche, so I thought, well, if no one else is doing it, I'll do one myself. Funnily enough, within weeks of me actually recording my first one and putting it out, I did actually find that there was another Def Lapper podcast that did two episodes and they haven't done it since. It was really good, actually. It was called Undefeated. And in a way, I'm hoping they come back on and uh, share share the weight of doing Def Lapper podcasts. You never have too many. So essentially, I love podcasts and obviously I love Def Leppard that's what i was looking for to listen to and there was nothing out there so mm-hmm. i decided to make one myself and yeah that was about 18 yeah about 18 months ago coming up to now tell me about your Def Leppard origin story how did you how did you come upon the band how did you become a fan uh, what is what is the depth of your Def Leppard fandom yeah so in 1988 i was 10 and my brother was three years older than me, he was 13, and he got into Iron Maiden. So you know the way you often can get into music through a older sibling? 
um, like the older brother and his record collection. And it was very much a case of, I saw he was into Iron Maiden. I thought, oh, that's, that's good. I might get into Iron Maiden as well. And then he suggested to me that I should get my own band. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he said, well, there's a band out there called Def Leppard. I think they're quite good. Why don't you get into them? So never having heard Def Leppard, I went to a local shop called Woolworths that doesn't exist anymore where you could buy singles. And they happened to have a single out at the time. And it wasn't a big rock single. It was Love Bites, which is a big ballad, got to number one. Um, in America. So I purchased that without hearing it on 12 inch. I've still got it to this day. Um, and I really liked it. And also the good thing about that single was it had two B-sides on it. One was Billy's Got a Gun Live off the Pyromania album, which I know we're going to discuss a little bit later on. And then also there was another song off the Hysteria album called Excitable, which is like a dance track. Mm-hmm. So within this 12 inch record, there were three very, very different sounding songs. And then on the back of that, I then bought a pirate copy for £2 off a man who used to come around the houses and sell pirate copies on cassette of um, albums. And I bought Hysteria and then listened to it nonstop for essentially about a year. And then it was from that point that I then delved backwards into it. So interesting. I got into a lot of other bands around that time as well, but they never stuck. But the one that actually stuck, so it was just sheer luck, to be honest. I I just bought a a record of a band I'd never heard based on my brother saying, why don't you find a band? And, you know, whatever it is, 30 years later or so, I'm still here. Yeah. Get your own, he says. (laughs) Get your own band. Um, So you kind of answered this question. You went from Hysteria was your entry point. You went backwards first and then came forward with the band. Yeah, that's exactly it. So as, as you know, there's often, a for, for different reasons, there's been big gaps between Def Leppard albums. So obviously between Pyromania and Hysteria, there's a four-year gap because the drummer Rick Allen loses his arm. Mm-hmm. And between Hysteria and Adrenalize, you've got 1987 and 1992. There was a big gap between them two because obviously Hysteria World Tour lasts for two years. And then Steve Clark, who was a guitarist, died. So there was another tragedy that delayed it. So because of that, although I discovered them in 1988, there was then a two or three year gap before the next album came out, Adrenalize. So I actually had that time then to go backwards and discover all of the other albums. So it was Hysteria that obviously I discovered first. And then from that, and particularly from Love and Billy's Got a Gun, which to this day is one of my favourite Def Leppard songs, I then li- I literally went in reverse order backwards. So I got Pyromania, loved that. Then I got High and Dry, loved that. And then got On Through the Night and loved that. So I actually had like a couple of years per- couple of years between Hysteria and Adrenalize coming out to actually discover the four previous albums. I was really surprised to see how, how different they were. So if you take those four albums, I mean, each one doesn't sound very much like the one that came before it. So it was quite an interesting period of the discovery for me going backwards and abandoned, hearing them getting heavier and heavier and heavier. <laughs> so obviously I've got into that quite commercial, polished, Mutlang produced sound. But mm-hmm. even though I've gone back, and obviously at this time I'm not only listening to Def Leppard, I'm listening to... You know, I'm discovering Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Neil Young and Iron Maiden and um, and all of these bands as well. Um, so I have no problem with it getting heavier. And 
so in fact, I quite liked it. And I'm listening to High and Dry and thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like that ACDC album, Highways of Hell. And there's obvious reasons why we're the same producer. So yeah, it was um yeah, it was a good year, a couple of years to sort of discover all of that previous stuff as well. Yeah, I was I had a similar path, uh, but one album earlier. I, I came in through um through the photograph video really on MTV. Uh Def Leppard was not really well known in the united states and then we got mtv i think our house got it in i think 83 i want to say mm. we we started seeing this guy on our tv that's wearing the british flag as a shirt and another guy's a drummer and he's wearing it as his shorts and um they've got you know women in cages and they got Marilyn Monroe being strangled and <laughs> all this stuff. And it just a very, uh, a strange video, but at least it wasn't one of those ones where the band was acting it out, but it was one of the first, I think story so, sort of story videos that we, that we saw on MTV. And just based on the strength of that song, um, I started enjoying that. And then you, you'd start to every once in a while, see a video from one of the high and dry songs. And so I started with, pyromania went back to high and dry went back to on through the night and kind of like you i just like wow this is this is good stuff and it's um it's it, we're going to be talking as you mentioned about pyromania a little bit uh later in the show but i wanted to find out sort of for you in in england def leopard i'm not sure how they're viewed because it seems like when i looked back at the at the charts it seemed like def leopard did much better in the u.s than in their native england yeah, there's two very different stories for Def Leppard, whether you're looking at it from a UK perspective or whether you're looking at it from perspective of the States. And there's two very different trajectories. The overall common theme, however, is that they've always been much, much bigger in the United States than they have in the UK. Um, so essentially, they break in the States with the photographs and video that you saw. That's what really breaks them. The, the US audience has been primed a little bit just before that because obviously it's a couple of years um, before that that MTV starts up. And because they've got a, they've only got a few videos, there's a Def Leppard video for Bringing on the Heartbreak, which is just a live uh, video. Now, that was actually recorded in a theater called the Royal Court Theater in Liverpool, where I'm from. Um, okay. So I, I like that little link. Uh, it's it's well before my time, so that used to get played on quite heavy rotation. And when that when that came onto MTV, the High and Dry album had really stalled and stopped selling. But once the High and Dry video came out, then obviously 
that reinvigorated that album. And then High and Dry started selling quite a lot more. And then it, the US audience is then primed then when um, Photograph comes out and that really explodes onto um, MTV. And what's really interesting to give you a comparison between the success in the UK and the success of states in the states of Pyromania is on the, the first the first gig of the Pyromania tour, Def Leppard played in a really little club in in um, London called the Marquee Club, which is you know, quite quite famous. But it's like you know, it's mm-hmm. a few hundred people. By the time they finished that tour in the states, they're playing in a stadium. I think it's called the Murphy Stadium, and it's just fifty five thousand people there. And it goes on to sell like over six million records at the time um, in the States. But it's only really in um, 1987 that they break in Britain with the release of Animal. And Animal gets to number six. Def Leppard have got a bit of a, a bad relationship with the British music press in the early 80s. That doesn't really um, do them any help. But I mean, that's, that's the British music press. The British music press, have got through the years, there's loads of bands they really hated. They hated Led Zeppelin. They hated Queen. They didn't like Def Leppard. There's a, there's a definite certain type of band. I think any band that they think are particularly showy or flash, they tend not to like. But I think with Rick losing his arm um, on New Year's Eve, 1984, and then they play, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of the sentiment softens towards Def Leppard. And then by the time Hysteria is released, I think it's, it, they're welcomed with a lot more open arms. And then they have a really such a successful period then. So that really stays to this day. They still play arenas and what have you in, in Britain. One thing that I like about your podcast is that you, you have a, a tremendous gift for wordplay. I think that it's it's fun just to listen to the way that you intro the show, the way you you kind of weave a narrative about what your your subject is. And I'm interested to know do you do you script out everything ahead of time? Do you do you read from a script? Do you practice it, or, or do you just go in cold and this this with a like a basic outline? No, I, I can't go in cold. I tried that so. For example, on this podcast now, you'll hear me going mm, eh, ah, mm, mm, and, 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 and things like that a lot more. So there's a reason why when I do Def Left Pod, I can't just come in cold and just have this free flow of perfectly articulate conversation, which some podcasters are really, really good at. So what I tend to do, though, because it's three quarters scripted, so it's bullet point scripted, mm-hmm. but quite detailed bullet points but it's not word for word scripted but about three quarters and any other thing that I, I tried to do with it is so it doesn't sound too scripted because I think when something sounds too scripted it can create a bit of a sort of a wall between you and the listener so mm. I try my best to break that down so what I will do is that the bullet points that I write I will just write them off the top of my head and what goes down in those bullet points are the basis of what I say. I won't like draft and then redraft it and refine it or whatever. So what I say, although it's bullet point scripted, it's still what just came out of my head as if I was um, as if I was speaking and able to articulate myself without going um, uh, and having lots of delays. <laughs> OK, fair enough. So it's yeah, I I just enjoy the the way that you sort of outline things. How much research do you do for like um there I go with an um. Let's say a, just a typical <laughs> song like a, a you're like you're going to feature a song, like you're going to do 
um, hit and run or something. Uh, how how long do you do you think you spend just researching that topic? I will tend to know about seventy to eighty percent of what I say. Um, that gives me that gives me a good starting point. Where if I think of a song, I'll straight away think, well, I know there's this, this, and this, and this to say about it. I know that these there's these other versions. I know that it might be related to that song in this way and whatever. So I'll know a lot of it myself. And then essentially what I'll do is I'll just sit down and then I will dig through old magazines I've got on the internet and, you know, use things like Setlist FM, you know, just to, to see when the song was first played or or, or whatever, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And then normally then I will come up across things that I didn't know. And then I'll have a whole lot of facts and things that I know about the song. And then once I've got all of those facts and things about the song, and that, by the way, that could be, I dread to think what it is. I've actually added it up over time. I'll sort of give myself like, you know, a couple of weeks to just be thinking about it and mulling it over and finding things and finding little YouTube clips and finding little interviews and finding little clips of songs. So if I added all that time up, it's probably about, I don't know, probably about eight, nine, ten hours, I I think, um, about that. But yeah, I try not to think about it because I probably stop doing it if I actually added up the time. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you've got, uh, I mean, you've got a family, so they they have to see you sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But they 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 quite like me doing it. They know how much I like Def Leppard and everything. So they see it makes me happy. It keeps me out of trouble. Keeps me yeah. off the streets, Michael. So um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm familiar with that that uh, kind of uh, family um, understanding. Let's say. <laughs> One of the things that I think is interesting is you come up with, like, sometimes it's like an isolated guitar part or an isolated vocal. And I just wonder, is that stuff that you find through through YouTube digging or Reddit or pe- do people send you stuff? How do you come up with that stuff? I just find that stuff on YouTube. It's as, yeah. it's as simple as that. I know there's there's, um, there's other podcasts out there. So there's a really good um, Iron Maiden podcast called Talking Maiden, which... I mean, they. I think they did a couple of hundred episodes and they stopped now, but that's really good. But I know that the fellas who did that, and one of them in particular, where they have isolated guitar tracks and isolated vocals, I think they actually do that themselves. They actually have the know-how how to do that. I don't. Mm. And essentially where I can do, the very idea of doing that is I rip that off them, essentially. So, <laughs> I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, you know, you hear ideas and you, you, know, you, you take them which I think is fine, um, and but you just put your own little spin on it. But no, I'm not able to do that myself. I don't have the technical expertise or access to the original tracks. But there's obviously people out there who do, and they put these things on YouTube. There's not that much still for Def Leppard, to be honest. There's, um, there's some good stuff out there for Photograph. There's some good stuff out there for Love Bites. But there isn't loads. But if you, if you look for the same thing for Iron Maiden, there's hours and hours of isolated tracks. Yeah. So before we get into our pyromania discussion, while we've got people's attention, I want you to tell people where they can find you, where they can find Def Lep Pod, and uh, we'll tell them again at the end, but why don't we tell them now? Yeah, thank you. So yeah, Def Lep Pod, you can find on any app that you use podcasts. So you just go into them and you um, type in Def Lep Pod, you will find it. My host site that I use is Podbean, which I think is the same as you, Michael. Yes, it is. Um, so not that many people listen through Podbean. It tends to be Apple. I get a lot of people listening through Amazon Music for some reason. Mm-hmm. That, that's just started um, all of a sudden. So essentially, if you search Def Leppard, 
you'll find it. And then I'm on Twitter. I am as at DefLepPod. I used to be on Facebook as DefLepPod, but uh, my account got closed down because I think it looked too close to the actual Def Leppard. It looked like I was trying to be Def Leppard, even though I clearly wasn't. So I'm now on Facebook as DefLepPod Neil. And then there's just a picture of me with my T-shirt on that says Def Left Pod. So, um, as I said, I'm not an expert in all of the, the socials and the technical stuff. It's all a little bit amateurish. But, um, yeah, if you search Def Left Pod, you'll find it these days. How many times have you seen Def Leppard live? Ooh. Well, it must be quite a lot because I don't know. Uh, I, can't, I couldn't count okay. it. So I've seen them on every tour since Adrenalize. And I've probably seen them twice on most of those tours and then there's been the odd other gig that they've done um if i was going to hazard a guess it's probably about 15 times something like that mm-hmm. so not not loads and loads and loads i'm not one of these people who follows a band around um mm-hmm. everywhere that's just their finances permitting but i must say and i don't know about you michael but with the coronavirus and the pandemic and everything i'm very much of the mindset that when and start playing again properly and um we're free to go out there and see all of these gigs now with Def Leppard played again it's like you realize how you take it for granted and I'll probably go and try and see them in every every gig on the British tour now um, right. so I don't know if you feel like that as well but like you know other bands you like yeah I mean it's it's a little harder for us to follow bands around here this country's a little yeah. big but uh <laughs> but I I know what you mean because when we open back up for concerts, I have already seen uh, several, and I've got more on the docket. I, I'm I'm very interested in in seeing as many shows as I can because after about almost two years of not being able to see anybody, it's now I just want to see everyone as as often as I can. So it's been uh, it's been a lot. Of, it's been an expensive layout for tickets and t-shirts <laughs> and whatnot, but it's it's worth it. It's fun, and um, yeah, I my my big regret is that i don't have one band that i'm just so into i've got i just can't do it it's just to me i'm i mean you could see behind me is part of my collection and if if i did that for every band i liked i would never have i wouldn't have any place to live (laughs) i think so (laughs) who are you going to see next uh the next one i have purchase tickets for is uh, i'm going to see genesis in december and so um but I'm I'm kicking the tires on perhaps going to uh, some shows between now and then. So we'll have to see see how it goes. But I know Dave, those shows have been going down really well. They've been getting really well reviewed. Obviously, Phil Collins is in there, not in great shape at the moment. Yeah. But apparently, vocally, he's um, he's still delivering. And, and I've heard that that tour is really good. So yeah, excellent, yeah. good stuff. Yeah. So I will tell you my. I have a weird Def Leppard story before we get into the Pyromania thing. I, I was working in, um, I used to be in um, sports and I used to be, um, I, I still do public relations work, uh, but I was working specifically for a hockey team in South Florida in uh, the early 2000s. And I was contacted by somebody who said they liked my feature stories and they had a potential job for me if I was interested. And what they were, supposedly was a friend of the girlfriend of steve clark and the girlfriend of steve clark supposedly wanted to tell steve's story of his his final day on earth his final hours and and you know sort of the story that led up to it and everything and 
So I was like, yeah, I'm interested in that. I, you know, I, we, I talked to this guy on the phone. I, we, we exchanged a bunch of emails and he said, you know, she's, she's really shy. She's really not sure she wants to do it, but you know, she, she knows that she wants the story out there and all this stuff. And, and so I was like, okay, well, I'd have to interview her. Obviously I'd have to, we'd have to meet and talk and, and have some preliminary discussions, write an outline and all this stuff. I'd never written a, a full length book before, but I was all set to do it. And then, you know, it just started to get really squirrely and I wasn't hearing back. And and so I don't know if I was being catfished or what, but it was a very specifically deaf leopard catfishing. And it was very strange, but, <laughs> and it came out of nowhere. I mean, but I was thinking, yeah, this would be an interesting story to tell. You're right. That is a strange deaf leopard story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's from, that's possible. I, I talk a lot with people about deaf leopard. And that's probably the strangest one um, that I've heard. I'm glad. I'm glad you never got catfished, though. Yeah, I. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she just got cold feet, or maybe she never existed. I. I have no way of knowing. But I was. I was definitely interested in writing that story, but it just never came to pass. Oh, that's a shame. Let's talk about pyromania. This is my. I think if hold my feet to the fire, this is my favorite Def Leppard album. It's um, the bridge between the harder edged, harder rocking Def Leppard and, and the poly more polished, uh, higher sheen hysteria that, you know, sort of the band morphed into. And I think for me, High and Dry and Pyromania are the two, are my two favorites because of the fact that they have, they still have a little grit to them. Mm. Not that their the other albums after that haven't been fantastic, but um, I kind of could see where some people come from when they talk about it. Oh, I, I don't really like bands like Boston because they just sound a little too clean and too polished because I feel like Def Leppard kind of moved into that area. They didn't quite lose me, but um, I certainly like the little rougher around the edges uh, version of the band a little more. But uh, this album came out in 1983. It was the third studio album between High and Dry and Hysteria. And it was recorded from January to November 1982 at Parkgate Studios and Battery Studios. And that's that's a pretty long time to uh, to work on an album. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, first thing I would say, though, is the view that you've just given, and that's a view that I've heard a lot. For, I think anyone who discovered Def Leppard, you always have a fondness for the point at which you discover a band anyway. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a general sort of, it can be like a bias towards that. But I know particularly people who got into Def Leppard on the High and Dry album or the Pyromania album, they, to this day, are still their favourite, still their favourite Def Leppard albums. Um, for, for me, Pyromania would be second. So even though I go back and discover that afterwards, I, 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 it's an album that I still really love. But yeah, in terms of the length at the time, well, I think I mean High and Dry took two months, and at the time that was considered a long time uh, to create an album because I think late seventies, early eighties, there's still very much in rock music, and that's and that's fine because there's lots of different ways to um, to skin a cat. Um, as such, is that it's about catching the live essence of the band and catching that rawness on record. I think Def Leppard always looked at it in a different way in which they saw the live arena and they saw the recorded arena as such as two very different things in which you could do and show two very different sides of the band. So you see Def Leppard, they're still, they still can be quite raw live, especially on some of those early songs. But obviously uh, Pyromania is the one where 
well, there's, <laughs> it's funny with Def Leppard. The same story it tends to repeat itself multiple times. So they go into high and dry and they want to make a, they want to spend longer on the production and try and push the boundaries of what they've done previously. Then they do the same thing on Pyromania, but to a more extreme degree. And then they do the same again on Hysteria to a more extreme degree. Then obviously on your personal taste, you draw the line of maybe where they pushed it too far or didn't push it (laughs) far enough. And that's where the timeliness of Pyromania comes in, where it takes, you know, up to nearly a year is because they're now spending so much time on, you know, the production and trying to get things perfect and what have you. And I think it's on... There's, there's a bit of a myth. It's not a myth because it's true, but they don't do it on every song. But there's a con, there's a view that on all Def Leppard albums that they record each of the strings on a guitar separately. Um, that's the, you'll, you'll see that everywhere. And that, that, that doesn't happen. It happens on one small part of the song Hysteria. But the first place that it does happen where for one part of a song, they did actually record all of the single strings in a chord separately and then put them together so it sounds like the one chord was actually on um, the chorus to Billy's Got a Gun because they couldn't get like a deep um, bass, sort of fat enough sound. So Mutt Lang decided to do it that way. So if you think about that, if they're recording parts of a song, string at a time on a guitar, then all of a sudden, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 months or whatever to record an album starts making more it starts making more sense why that might actually happen yeah exactly but you know it they used to make used to make albums in a couple of days and then now we're we're taking years here at this point uh it was released on january 20th 1983 on vertigo in the uk and europe and on mercury in the us produced as you mentioned by robert john mutt lang uh joe elliott on lead vocals steve clark lead and rhythm guitars Phil Collins' first album with Leopard is his guitar solos on tracks one through three, six and seven, and additional rhythm guitars. Rick Savage on bass, Rick Allen on drums, and Pete Willis, his last gasp uh, with the band, rhythm guitars. He had some of the stuff recorded before he was fired. Yeah, and not only is he on the record, you'll, if you actually look at the song credits, he's actually titled and he's actually credited for writing quite a few of those songs so it's a strange album where you've actually got three different guitarists um on there um and i think with the loss of pete willis you well you, you lose some things losing pete willis you gain some things getting phil Collins. i think mm-hmm. pete willis's musical taste were at the heavier end than the rest of the band so his favorite band was judas priest so obviously if he's included in songwriting then you know he's going to bring some of that heavier element in the same way that Steve Clark did. Like his hero was Jimmy Page. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those earlier albums, the heavier side of it will come from Pete Willis and Steve Clark. So, so you still get that in Pyromania. There are some songs in there that are still quite heavy or quite very guitar based. So like Die Hard the Hunter, but he's got a gun and what have you. What you get with Phil Collin is you probably get technically a better guitarist. So. Some of the guitar solos on Pyromania, so things, for example, uh, Rock of Ages, Stage Fright, Photograph, they're all Phil Collin. I mean, they're effectively his auditions to get into the band, is playing those solos. Um, I think Stage Fright, he got in, like, the first take, and that was essentially his audition. So you get really good solos from Phil Collin, and then also what you get is 
when Phil Collins came in, they realised how well he could sing. So he's added to a lot of the backing vocals. So the the melodies and the harmonies are all of a sudden enhanced in Pyromania from the introduction of Phil Collins. So it's quite an interesting album in terms of you've got the influence of Pete Willis and some of the heaviness and the guitars in there, but you've got some of the things that Phil Collins brings as well. So you've definitely got the influence of three different guitarists as well as the rest of the band and the songwriting there. So it's, it's a really interesting album and I think it benefits from all of those influences. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the non-regulars here. The backing vocals are they're credited to the Leopardettes. What do you know about the Leopardettes? I'm imagining that Mutt Lang is one of them. Yeah, Mutt Lang does a lot of the backing vocals and also his wife at the time um, did a lot of the backing vocals. I think beyond that, though, it's essentially just the rest of the band. But I don't know any stories from Pyromania, um, but... I don't know if you've, if you've discovered the Rock and Tours podcast with Gary Kemp out of Spandau Ballet. Um, mm-hmm. And a ba- yeah. bass player, Guy Pratt, plays for Pink Floyd Live. Yep. They they had a podcast with Joe Elliott. I said it's quite interesting. They were saying in that that Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet is actually on the back and vocals to Animal off Hysteria. No so I think... I think the band have always been quite relaxed and just bringing people in off the streets <laughs> and um, where there's really big vocals, getting lots of people in there. So I would imagine there's lots of stories about the Leopardettes on Pyromania. There could there could be all sorts of people in there that you you know are not actually credited. On the main in the main, no, I think it's the band themselves and Mutlang. If you know anything about the Leopardettes, write to me, Michael's Record Collection at gmail.com and, and tell us and we'll we'll get back uh, we'll get back to you. We'll 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 revisit this. John Congos did Fairlight CMI programming and the legendary Thomas Dolby appears on this album. I believe he was he has a very strange credit on this album. Yeah, he's he's credited as Booker T. Boffin um on this <laughs> album. Do you, do you know why he's not given his real name? I do not know that story. The reason he wasn't given his real name is that he, he didn't want to give his real name. So obviously he's, he's very much into electronic music at the time. And, you know, he, he doesn't really want to be associated with rock bands, but he's doing keyboards on all sorts of rock bands, you know, um, you know to earn a little bit of money on the side and to use his skills. But it's not necessarily something that he wants to be associated with or in his disc, discography. So therefore, mm-hmm. when um, he... He played keyboards on a few songs on Pyromania, Rock of Ages, Photograph comes to mind. Um, oh, he's on Die Hard the Hunter as well. Um, he asked to actually not be credited. So therefore, that's why he's given a different name on it. He was ashamed, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and and the legendary Tony K from Yes is uncredited uh, with additional keyboards on this album. Yeah, yeah. So th- this is what I'm saying. This is why I think the Leopardettes may actually have some interesting people in it as well, because obviously... Around this time, they start bringing in people to provide services that the band can't themselves um, do. There's, there's like a keyboard base on there, and I, but like on Rock of Ages, where it literally goes bum 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 bum. I mean, me me or you could play. Well, actually, you might be an expert. Uh, you, you might be able to play all sorts of instruments, Michael. I don't know, but um, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there are some things in there that they've done themselves. But on the whole, once it gets beyond maybe single single um bass notes and um, just plodding along to um add a bit of color to the, the normal bass on rock of ages they've had to get in um, a few other people you did a show i don't remember if it was the photograph 
or the Billy's Got a Gun episode, you did one where you talked about the keyboards and you had some isolated keyboard uh, parts. And until then, I I'd never really thought about keyboards in Pyromania other than there's a couple of places where it's a little obvious. But once you know to look for them and you go looking for them, it's amazing how just these simple small parts bulk up the sound of this album. Yeah, and that, that's how the keyboards are used. I mean, the, the episode that you're talking about is uh, the photograph episode. Okay. And it's really interesting because if you isolate those keyboard parts, they're ridiculously simple and they're not, they don't sound particularly good, to be honest, on their own. But when you then add it to the rest, those keyboard parts are very much there to add texture as opposed to be up front a massive you know, like a massive like lead keyboard solo or keyboard part. But it's one of those things where it's sort of, if you took them away, you would notice, but you you don't notice. But with a lot of things like that in like Death Leopard production, as soon as you hear something and something that you might have missed previously, it's impossible to not to not hear it again. So there's like, you know, there's the songs off like um, Hysteria, like Gods of War, that's got all strange um vocals and things in the background that like sound like they're being like triggered like like um loops or programs and you would just never notice it normally but then when you hear it and like you know it's isolated when you then put it back on it's impossible to not hear these things and the keyboard parts and pyromania are very much like that yeah i i found it fascinating once i knew that they were there it was just you'd go back and listen to the whole album like that and you hear it and you you think you know mutt lang takes some grief from a lot of people but also if you just hear that and just just for him to know that that would would help the the sound of the songs so much just these little subtle things that as you mentioned on their own don't sound very good particularly mm. um it's kind of genius yeah and, and i think as well it's like so, so i played a guitar a little bit and you know you can buy like guitar tab books where you can learn to you know like play the parts and it's interesting so if you take songs off hysteria less so of pyromania pyromania's got a lot more just basic riffs on and you can play it and it sounds like the song but with other death lap it's stuff you like look at a song and it's like the seven different guitar parts and they're all playing different little bits and if you play any one bit on its own it doesn't really sound like the song but if you played all the bits together it then sounds like it so i think pyromania is the beginning of looking at guitars and instruments in a in an orchestrated way where you build up layers and layers of um, sounds and textures and whatever to get an overall sound. So that starts in Pyromania and then it's probably taken to the, its nth degree um, in Hysteria, but it's definitely starts in Pyromania, I think. Yeah, and it's why I think you have this progression from a, a more raw sound to a more polished sound over time and why they still sound a little more raw in in a live setting because you don't have all of these different parts being played at the same time so yeah, uh, but again it's just master craftsmanship on the album uh in the album making process this album reached number two on the billboard 200 album charts in the usa number 18 in the uk albums chart it's something called diamond i didn't even know this was a thing i've heard of multi-platinum but i didn't know there was a thing called diamond but apparently if you have sold more than 10 million copies in the US, you, you get diamond uh, certification from the RIAA. Um, seven times platinum in Canada, only silver in the UK. Come on, Neil. 
I know, I know. It's funny what you said about. Um, I probably bought half of them, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so to get to get it to silver, because um, I had it on tape, I had it on record, got it on CD. Um, but interestingly, I never knew about the diamond um, certification either. And the only reason I knew about it is because that Def Leppard were awarded it. I think they've gone double diamond or something. I think oh, twenty million copies of hysteria sold in america alone which is mad and if you look at the other rock bands that are up there it's it's they're like iconic bands that i think most music fans who don't like Def leopard would think that it's a disgrace that um Def leopard could even be <laughs> mentioned in the same breath as them you know like like the beatles led zeppelin few other like absolutely like iconic like you know the bands um as such so i think it's always a big surprise when people realize that they're flapping they're in there but i don't know exactly what it was obviously i'm not american you might be able to tell but there's just there was some connection there's something going on between Def leopard and the population of the united states of america in the 1980s where those two um th- those two entities really really get on and like each other there's some chemistry there and i i couldn't tell you what it is because I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I think it was, I think it was probably a perfect storm of a lot of things happening at the same time. There were, you know, this, this country has embraced hard rock from, you know, from its inception. And and so it's always been a very popular genre, but then you add in the, you know, the, the MTV factor. I mean, these were good looking guys making great hard rock sound that had good hooks to them. I think there were a lot of things going for it at, at the time. It was, uh, you know, the girls could like the band and the guys could like the band. And so there was, you know, that you, you're doubling your audience right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. As I mentioned, this album, only silver in the UK, but it's okay. I'm sure their, their, their bank accounts are fine. <laughs> <laughs> It starts off with rock, rock till you drop it. I love punctuation in album song or in song titles. Rock exclamation point, rock exclamation point, <laughs> parenthesis till you drop. <laughs> great album opener it's up tempo it gets things going very nicely uh one of the things that i think this band does very well is sequence their albums because the the two big really um i think cinematic songs on the album are the two uh album side closers but rock rock till you drops a fantastic opener yeah rock rock till you drop as well that that's a really see that that's perfect fodder for a podcast because there's an earlier iteration of rock rock till you drop so before that song became that song it was called medicine man so in 1980 they play a live version of the song called medicine man and it's the same it's the same main riff as rock rock till you drop 
it's even got the same introduction at the beginning, but it's the same introduction, but without keyboards, because that introduction's got keyboards in it. Again, you don't massively hear them. And it's really, really interesting if you listen to Medicine Man to Rock Rock Till You Drop, because Medicine Man's got the the hook in the in the melody is nowhere near as good. And the lyrics just I'm not saying rock rock till you drop has got, you know, it's not Shakespeare um, by, by any <laughs> means. But it's, you know, there's a phonetic sound in there that's easy. It is an easy hook. It's like rock, mm-hmm. rock till you drop. So there's like an assonance in the O in the O sound and what have you. So you you've it's just easy and accessible to get into. And it's it's quite a good exercise in seeing that when they got with Mutt Lang in terms of the way they were pushed to um to rewrite songs and try and deliver, you know, catch your hooks and be more accessible. And listening to Medicine Man, and no one's ever heard that. You can go on to Spotify or iTunes or whatever. There's an album called Live in Oxford 1980. Um, and Medicine Man's on that. You can listen to that and compare it to Rock Rock Till You Drop. But there's no comparison. The version that ends up on Pyromania is a much better version. And it's, well, I say it's the perfect opener. You could argue that Stage Fright would be the perfect opener for that album, but, um, you know, it's a it's a, a perfectly fine opener if you don't want to have Stage Fright. Though Stage Fright has <laughs> always seemed to me, you know, with the way it begins, we're like, welcome to my show. That, yeah. that always seems to have been like an obvious album opener, but I don't know, maybe they just thought it was a little bit too heavy or too fast. I'm not too sure. Well, I think the message you want is right off the bat is rock rock till you drop it's yeah. a very american uh type of thing it's like yeah we're good party we're gonna have a good time and <laughs> and you know it it gets you right into it whereas stage fright that's kind of a negative thing <laughs> yeah that's a good point yeah yeah stage yeah. fright i don't know i don't know about that i mean but you're right the the welcome to my show part is is uh certainly would lend itself to opening the album. This was an edited version of this was released as a single in Mexico. I didn't know that. And I hadn't seen until I started researching for this show, I hadn't seen the video for it. And uh, I don't know when it was recorded in terms of in proximity to other videos, but Joe's wearing the same shirt as he's wearing in the Foolin' uh, video. Yeah, I think that because I don't know if there's an official video for Rock Rock Till You Drop with it only being released in Mexico. And by the way, I never knew that. So you've taught me something. Thank you very much, Michael. That's good. Um, so, but there's a, there's a, there was a Def Leppard like, VHS cassette released in 1988 called Historia. Mm-hmm. And that is all of the videos from the beginning up to the Hysteria album. And it also includes a couple of television performances and one of the television performances is uh, Rock Rock Till You Drop. I think it's in Japan or somewhere like that. Um, it might be that video that you've um, seen, but I don't know if there's an actual proper video for it. It might just be that it's it's that one from, from Japan. Yeah, this in this one, it is, um, again, he's wearing the same shirt. It looks like they're playing in a warehouse. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about the same one. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same one we're talking about. I think it's a television <laughs> show in Japan. Yeah. Uh, but obviously not the same set, uh, even though he wore the same shirt, not the same set as a, as a much more uh, uh, grand setting for the Foolin video with the, the skulls and all the other things that they got going on there. But uh, it was an interesting one anyway. Uh, and I don't understand. <laughs> Inverted commas. Interesting. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand what, what, what it is with YouTube. We can 
we can shoot William Shatner into space, but we can't make a YouTube <laughs> video and audio sync up properly. I know it's it's funny those pyromania videos and those fooling ones, and maybe this is why it was big in America, particularly with um, ladies. Is that Joe Elliott seems to be tied to something on pretty much every <laughs> yeah. single one of those um, yeah those videos. Uh, we're, so Joe, we're gonna tie you up again. You know. <laughs> uh, so the second song is the big one. Um, still, probably one of my. If you had a desert island singles for rock singles, I would put photograph on this. Um, this was the subject of Def Lep Pod episode number five. Uh, first single off the album came out on February 3rd, num- went to number one on the mainstream rock chart here in the US, number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is you know the, the big hit um chart. Uh, again, Neil, I got a, I got a question in the UK, number 66 on the UK single chart. What? <laughs> for whatever reason they just weren't they weren't resonating at the time i mean they were in 1980 they on through the night sells quite well and they play a theater tour of britain you know playing about 2000 2500 people and that that goes really well and they're doing well they then go to the states on tour and then for whatever reason um there's a magazine a music magazine called sounds which turns against them it's a very british thing to do this by the way um <laughs> i could say that i'm british and uh it, it turns against them and they really they released um like a, an article or a feature you know, saying about has the leopard changed its spots and they start getting accused of you know selling out um, having a single called hello america um probably doesn't help them and for whatever reason the the, the people who do like, or some of the people who do like them at that time, turn very much like sort of turn against them. And they, they played a Redden Festival in the, in the August after they come back from the States and they don't go uh, down very well. And then from that point onwards, they just lose all momentum in the UK. They play a theatre tour for the High and Dry album, playing all exactly the same places they played on the On Through the Night album, and um, where they, they were all packed and most of them were sold out. And they're playing to less than half full theatres and i don't know if there's a bit of a um chicken and egg situation here or I thought it was chicken and egg or catch 22 but where because they're not doing well in britain and they're doing better in america that and they're playing all of these places in britain but no one's coming i would imagine that then comes a point where you put your efforts into where people are welcoming welcoming you and then that is um, exacerbated so yeah interestingly Def Leppard have, they talk about songs that they have to play live. They could get away with not playing Photograph Live in Britain. They couldn't get away with not playing Pour Some Sugar On Me or Hysteria mm-hmm. or Love Bites or Let's Get Rocked Even because uh, Adrenalized did well in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than actual Def Leppard fans, your casual fans who might come to an arena show to see Def Leppard because they've heard, they know Hysteria essentially. British fan, those British people won't know photograph, which is is mad if you're if you're American because like that's yeah, like, like, I mean it'd be that and pour some sugar on me are the two I would imagine undroppable songs in in yeah. the states. So, um, or I, I I can't legislate for the insanity of the British public <laughs> in the 1980s for not getting into Death Leopards. Uh, they were clearly very wrong, and I'm very angry. All of them, Michael, terrible. <laughs> Def Leppard does not uh, adhere to the uh, the British people's. Uh overall feelings on this album.
uh, yeah, photograph was is, is definitely an entry point for the U.S. and uh, it had very great guitar riffs, a, a fantastic solo, and just the soaring vocals that Joe has on this. You know, you, it's to this day if if I can every every once in a while singing along, I'll hit that note with him, and I'll just be like, yes. <laughs> And that, that's one where you, if you hear the isolated vocal for the photograph, it's amazing. It's, it's yeah. genuinely. And what's really good about it is Joe Ellett's a really good singer, but you know, he's not, you know, he's not like a Steve, Steve Perry or, or someone like, you know, these, 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 you get some people who can just sing anything, you know, they just sing absolutely anything. What's really good about the photograph, and especially where you hear it as isolated vocal, there's a real charm and there's something really, really, enticing when you can hear someone right at the very edge of what they can do and almost even if like they don't quite hit it that there's something good in that as well and i think photographs like that is right at the edge of what you can do there and it just gives it that even though it's a very polished sort of pop metal song there is that sort of underlying rawness i think where that comes from and if you hear his isolated vocals it sounds like it sounds like his throat's absolutely battered it's, it's really good <laughs> Uh, my throat hurts just listening to him trying to hit that note so uh but yeah it's it's got the strangest video though i mean there's just so many weird little things in there like there's these these images of someone like dropping all these all this jewelry into a hand that doesn't quite tie into the rest of the video uh at the end of it marilyn goes from alive to being choked to death to back to being alive and like hitting the camera with her shoe to being dead again at the end it's very odd i'd love to talk to the uh I'd love to talk to the director and find out what was going on there well that was david mallet and um david mallet if you look at all his videos through the 1980s he did lots of very very strange videos and i think like a lot of these music directors they come with an idea that you know that they want to put in a music video and it's sort of irrelevant whether <laughs> the song actually goes with it or not yeah and there was a lot of cocaine running around in the 80s <laughs> yeah <laughs> so who, who knows where that came from but uh we go back uh first for track three we go into stage fright the song that you mentioned the live sounding intro know the background of that the live uh sort of that that i don't know if it's simulated or, or or how they did that i think it's simulated um and i could i could only imagine that the reason it's in there is because of you know the title of the song but i don't think it's from an actual um recording but it's a good question i've not thought about it if it's not from a live recording then how is it simulated uh, you know what maybe that's my homework michael i'll have a little look, look into that and see if i can find out there's a future episode for you right there, yeah. and no charge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the only song that Steve Clark doesn't have a writing credit for. He was he was on uh, credited for all the other songs, and I think Mutt was credited for every song, and maybe Joe. 
yeah, and that, that's quite surprising as well, because especially when you listen to the riff in um, Stage Fright, you you would imagine if someone was going to say who wrote that riff, then you would think it would be, you know, it would be Steve Clark, because obviously he came up with something like Wasted on the first album. But um, yeah, so, I mean, what Def Leppard often say about Steve Clark is he would very rarely come with like a whole song or maybe even like a whole verse or whatever. But what mm-hmm. he'd do is he was the best for coming to the band with like, really cool parts and really cool riffs and gods of war being another one of the stereo album and then what they do is they would take them as the focal points to build songs around them or make sure that they included them so maybe stage fright was just one where he didn't he he didn't contribute a like a cool part because they already had one yeah uh, one of the, I think, more underrated songs on the album. I think it's something that I don't know how, how often they've done that one live, but that one, I don't think they played it when I saw them, and I've only seen them once, but that's one that I would like to see live. Stage Fright. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, on the on the Hysteria tour, they opened with that um, every night, and I think they did for a little bit of the Adrenalize tour. That was the first time I saw them in 1992. And I sure they might have started with stage fights but they've got a live video called in 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 the round in your face and mm-hmm. that's brilliant because it starts with um, stage fights and they play the first up until about halfway through the first verse behind like a curtain and then it drops um, as it as it kicks into the chorus and it's, it's amazing so it looks it's really good so yeah. yeah i'd love to i'd love to see them do that again and, and i'd love to see them open with that song uh, so they weren't trolling the uh, the British Isles by opening with Hello America. No, no. <laughs> no. Well, but, but it's interesting, actually, because when you hear about that song, it's, it's all it is, it's about escapism. You've got to remember that Joe Elliott was like working in the basement of a factory in Sheffield, which is an industrial town mm-hmm. in um, the UK. And a lot of those places that he refers to, and he didn't even know where they were. He like literally was just looking through an atlas or a map and going, okay, well, that word rhymes with that word, so that's what um, I'll put in it. They've got another song, which is the, it's the very first song on the very first EP, which is called Riding to the Sun. And it's essentially exactly the same sentiment. It's just a song of escapism, of wanting to just ride into the sun. And another version of wanting to ride into the sun, if you're in a basement in a factory in Sheffield where it just rains for 364 days a year, <laughs> is, you know, you're looking at, like, the palm trees and whatever, like, California in the States, and that's just a different version of ride into the sun. It probably could have easily have been ride to, I don't know, Thailand or somewhere else where yeah. it's sunny, to be honest, if they knew about Thailand. How... How hard is it to find that EP now in, in the UK? It's really difficult to find the original pressing of it. So there's an original re- pressing with a red label. It was only 1,000 of them. Um, and that's the one where Joe Elliott and his mum actually sat around a table, pasting together the actual um, the sleeve itself, mm-hmm. and it had like lyrics in it and what have you. Uh, so that's really, really difficult to get. If you... If you look on Discogs, um, for example, you know, you're normally looking at around a thousand pounds to get probably even like a not very good version of that. Like, I don't even know if it'd be like VG or VG plus. Uh, but then there's another one which they then released when they got signed um, that wasn't independent. Um, it's got a yellow label and it's um, the, the, the label, it's BSB001. If you get that one, 
um, you can pick that up for about £10 and they're quite easy to get. So that's not the okay. very, very first one that was released, but is when they got signed by their, by their managers and by um, the record label, which was on the back of the independent red label release. The yellow label release is quite easy to get. And it's worth getting as well because it's still... it's it's it, You know, when you listen to an album and all you can hear is one guitar... Two guitars, one bass, drums, vocals, and you can hear every single thing. And it essentially just sounds alive. Mm-hmm. And it's the the bass on that single. Um, there's a song called Overture, which is on the second side. The mm-hmm. bass um, on that is absolutely it sounds absolutely brilliant. It sounds like Rick Savage is in the room with you. So yeah, you can pick that up for about ten pounds, which is what about fifteen dollars. I would yeah. recommend that to your listeners. Okay, I have to get that. I, I now that you mentioned that story, I do. I think I recall you talking to someone on your podcast. And they had picked up a good copy of it and they had they had like they were scared they weren't going to be able to pick it up. They maxed out their credit card or something, but they they ended up getting uh, getting a copy of the the red label. Yeah. But um, Too Late for Love. This was the fourth single from the album, but a bit of a uh, what we call a power ballad. to number nine on the mainstream rock chart uh, here in the U.S., number 86 on the U.K. singles chart. This is a, a really, it's a it's got a really cool guitar solo and a very simple, um, it's kind of a simple solo, but it's very cool. I, I just like the way that uh, that they, they do some of these more subtle guitar uh, parts that aren't quite as theatric where it's almost like they bring the music down and just, just in a few notes say a lot with just, you know, just a simple little, riff yeah that, that is actually quite a simple song i know it's simple because i can actually play it all the way through and yeah. <laughs> i'm really not very good at all uh, and there's lots of like open strings in it and it's like nice and slow um, so it's like really it's quite an atmospheric song um and that's one that's they still play to this day they might not if they're just doing one of their summer tours of the states which is what they tended to do pretty much since around 2006 they might not play it but when they do things a little bit different, like maybe a Vegas residency or or maybe like an album tour, or whatever, they'll, they'll throw it in. And when they play something like Too Late for Love now, because it's not a song that they played, you know, like say, like a pour some sugar on me or something every single gig for the last 20 years. When that comes, it, it that's that's a real high point when he plays something like Too Late for Love's excellent song. Yeah. That little ding, 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 ding. That is just very cool. <laughs> And and it it's not something that you would think that that would you're just it's a, a little bit of a surprise every time they do it. I just I just say coming up with that was interesting because it's so it's simple and it's just you know it's not like theatrical at all. It's not uh, complex. It just fits the song perfectly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you 
like you said, like a ballad, because you think it is a ballad as well, but I think it's a little bit different. It's, it's, it seems a little bit moodier than like, like, it's a, like an out and out love song. There's mm-hmm. something a little bit more darker about it, maybe, you know, like that's because it's too late. It's too late for love, Neil. It's they're, yeah, it's they're not, not in <laughs> love is over. It's too late for that. Yeah, it's not love has arrived at my door 10 minutes yeah. early. It's yeah, <laughs> like you said, it's too late. <laughs> yeah, it's not, oh, you're the love of my life. It's like, ah, too late. Um, but yeah, it's a great song. Uh, and then that that goes right into the very cinematic Die Hard the Hunter. song about what war does to a person and and how those mental scars are sort of carried forward um and this just seems like and i didn't really have a lot of time to get into this and i was having trouble finding specifics on this but you've probably uh had a little bit more of a dive into die hard the hunter than i have and i wondered was this joe just seeing a movie and saying i want to i want to like i just watched the deer hunter i want to write a song about this or uh, was there something a little bit more personal in this for him? No, no that's exactly what you just said in terms of it was inspired by um, Dale Hunter um, and Billy's Got a Gun was inspired by Death Wish. Um, so essentially what happens in the Pyromania album is that Joe decides he wants to start writing a different type of song, maybe one with a little bit more gravitas or a bit more of a narrative or a bit more of a story. But you got to remember at this point, they're still relatively young. They're in like the early Mm twenties. And I don't think there's maybe a massive amount of dark life experience to sort of pull on at that point. So like probably what like most young men do, um, you're like going to see the movies and then they take a part of, you know, a narrative of a movie. And they very much use that to influence um, a couple of songs. So, yeah, Die Hard the Hunter is very much just lifted from, lifted from Dear Hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but again, it, it's just such a a big sounding song, like a like a soundtrack song. You, you can imagine watching a movie and hearing that in the in the theater in the the Dolby three hundred and sixty. And actually, they should put that out in the Dolby three hundred and sixty so we can hear it that way. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, it's got all helicopters at the start. It's very um, apocalypse now at the start with like that, you know, the helicopters and, yeah. and what have you. And it's got that slow start that builds up the atmosphere, and then obviously it kicks in with um, with that with that riff. Um, do you know what that riff is taken from? I'm not too sure if you'll you'll know this um, reference because I'm going to refer to a British musician from the '60s who I don't think I don't think he made it outside of Britain. Have you ever heard of a man called Cliff Richard? I do know Cliff Richard. Yes, we have uh, 
We have very little knowledge of Cliff on this side of the ocean, but uh, there he, he, had, he had, I think his biggest hit here might have been We Don't Talk Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Cliff Richard is essentially um, Britain's far, far inferior version of Elvis. <laughs> so like obviously Elvis comes out, you know, as like a musical icon, changes the shape of music and what have you. So Britain finds like a, you know, like a very light, spelt L-I-T-E version of Elvis. Um, and it happens to be uh, Cliff Richard. He's got like no sex appeal whatsoever. It's, it's like the opposite end. But he, he tries to play some sort of like rock and roll but Anyway, uh, apologies for anyone who loves Cliff Richard. Um, he, he used to get to he used to get Christmas number one all of the time in Britain in the eighties. So I've got a little bit of a uh, not a soft spot, whatever the opposite of a soft spot is, <laughs> but an annoy an annoying spot. But anyway, he had a song called Devil Woman, and the melody to Devil yeah. Woman goes, yeah. uh, "She's just a devil woman." Do, 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 do. Yeah. If you listen to the riff of Die Hard the Hunter, they ripped it off the melody for Devil Woman because the riff goes do 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 And that's where they lifted it from, or took the idea from, is wow. um, a Cliff Richard song. Did Cliff get a, a credit, or at least a, a a credit after the fact? No, no, because yeah. I think this definitely comes under the um, the category of um, too being simple influence. <laughs> yeah, being influenced by other music as opposed to um, stealing it. <laughs> Yes, I remember Devil Woman. Yes, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah. and I think I take that back about Cliff. I think it maybe his biggest hit here was his duet with Olivia Newton-John for the Xanadu soundtrack with uh, "Suddenly." Oh, I don't think I, I don't think I know that one. Um, very big here. I don't know about there, but it sounds like every Christmas you guys get uh, a Cliff Richard song and a Doctor Who special. Yeah, we did. There was a song called "Mistletoe, <laughs> Mistletoe and Wine." Um, they always had uh, a strong uh, Christian element to them, which is fine and everything, you know what I mean? But uh, it's, yeah, it, it was it was all like, all like a little bit strange. You'd rather have like, you know, Slade. Because like, in the 70s, British number ones out of Christmas were all like these like really like colourful, loud, glam British pop rock songs. And then in the 80s, it starts getting a little bit more strange. Hmm. Side two kicks off with Foolin'. This was the third single off the album, September 1983. It came out as a single... Went to number nine on the mainstream rock chart here, number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100.
the uh, the note I have here is a weird video with a captive Joe Elliott escaping from captivity when his shackles inexplicably sort of explode. And then he walks down these uh, sort of like um, uh, curtain drape drapery curtain black hallway with explosions going off behind him. It is it is surreal. And then there's a woman that I don't know if it's his girlfriend he's escaping from. She's got a crystal ball, just an insane video, but a great song. And um, again, the, the, the Leps do one thing very well, and that's to write uh, very catchy guitar uh, riffs. And and they do great backing vocals uh, with just about everything they do. Yeah, and that's a song that's still a staple of the live sets to this day. That's one that. I'm sure they played in like 95% of the gigs. Funnily enough, it's a song I, I like, and I probably like it a lot more than a lot of maybe like casual Def Leppard fans, but it's one to me where, it, as I said, it's a staple of the live show. They could happily drop it for me. It's a song that I like, but it's not a song that I like most of the songs on Pyromania much more. Um, I couldn't tell you a specific reason. Sometimes a song just resonates with you or it doesn't. And I do like it. I like the bit. Um, there's a bit in, in the middle where it goes, oh, I'm, I'm not getting the right to tune there, but there's like an <laughs> oh, oh bit uh, uh-huh. that I, I quite like. But yeah, it, it's a good song. But for me, it's, it's definitely not one of my favorites off Pyromania. And it is, it's a song I'd like to see them drop from a set list that might sound like blasphemy um, just to <laughs> give um, another song. Um, like I'd love to, you know what? I would love them to drop "Fooling" and play "Coming Under Fire" instead. Yeah, if they were going to yeah. replace it with a Pyromania song, which I believe they've never played live. Yeah, it's a pretty cool song. I wonder how they came up with the the affectation of the the sort of stutter because uh, you don't. I'm sure that's not something you wrote in the lyrics. Fool and it just kind of came up somewhere. I don't know if that's something Mutt introduced or what. I don't know, but I would imagine. Most things like that in Death Leopard songs, there's often a story behind them, which is great when you're doing a Death <laughs> Leopard podcast. Um, and it, it wouldn't surprise me because, like, the band were big fans of um, bands like The Who and what have you. So, obviously, mm. you've got uh, My Generation, which is probably yeah. the most famous song for having the the, the stutter in it. So, yeah. it, it wouldn't surprise me if they took the idea from something like My Generation by The Who. Yeah, yeah it could be. Rock of Ages comes next. This was the second single came out in May of 1983. It went to number one on the mainstream rock chart here, number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100. And of course, it's got the iconic gibberish of Gunter, Glieben, Glaut, and Globen, which was uh, then used by The Offspring in 1998 for Pretty Fly for a White Guy. Gunter, Glieben, Glaut, and Globen. Sounds like the lads were having some fun with some backward masking on this during the guitar solo with some some interesting things to say about the Russians. Uh, what do you know about that story? I don't know anything about the backward masking about the Russians. I'll have to, I'll have to listen to it. I don't know anything about that. I, I was, this, you know, was, about... this was straight, and, and it might be crap, because it was this was straight out of Wikipedia, but it was something like you can clearly hear them saying something about uh, Brezhnev and uh, something else about the... Um, something else about Russia, but it's when I, I listen to the song immediately after reading that they do say something, you can tell there's something going on there that you can't listen to forward to backward properly. Why do you 
But if you play it backward, supposedly they're talking, they're having a little fun at the Russians' expense. All right, that's interesting. I think with that type of thing, often um, there's all like there's all like tests that you can do, isn't it? Like where if you're told that it's saying something, you then your brain makes you um, hear it. And I don't, I don't know if that that's happening. There's a funny one on. Um, there's an Iron Maiden song. I can't remember, but at the, the end you play something backwards. And then when you actually play it the right way around, it's Nicol McBrain, the drummer, just shouting, "What go, said the king. And, and, and that's all it is. <laughs> yeah. And I know the um, the the opening, the Gunter Gleeman, Gautin Globen bit, there was attempts to uh, give that some meaning. And I think someone tried to say it was like, you know, running through the forest backwards or whatever. But they were able to put that to bed. That, you know, it was simply, it was a diff. Mort would just to introduce the song rather than going one, two, three, four, he would just say daft things. And I think there's probably recordings and say lots of different things and just making up gibberish. But mm-hmm. that one stuck and he kept it at the start of the song. Yeah. Sound is, it sounds German, but it's not. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and apparently the, the guys in Def Leppard just liked that one better than some of the other ones that he came yeah. up with and they decided to keep it. So that's, that's pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, when The Offspring came out with it in the late 90s, and I heard that and I was like, what? Uh, wait, that's not the right thing. That's not the right the music to follow that. <laughs> but the weird thing is, is when you speak to younger people, um, you, you hear the Offspring version. And then if they yeah. happen to hear the Rock of Ages, they go, oh, that's the Offspring um, start. It's like, no, no, you, you've got that all wrong. <laughs> As a 43-year-old man, I need to put you, put you right on this one. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, again, this was uh, Joe walking with a, a giant sword in the video. <laughs> There's some strange stuff going on, but um, again, most mostly Def Leppard's videos are performance with a couple of weird kind of side things for Joe to do. Yeah, but you know what I like? See, most of these videos we've talked about so far, we've gone, you know, that's a bit silly, that's a bit daft. Um, and that's totally the correct interpretation. Um, however, <laughs> there is a bit in this that I do really like. You know, he's got the sword and he puts the sword down on, on a light box and then yeah. all of a sudden the it flashes and it turns into the guitar and yeah. then it cuts to um, Phil Collard playing the guitar. So I'll, I'll be honest with you, I do really like that part of the video. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. I do like that. And, but you know, some of the stuff makes, I mean, you put a sword down on a light box, it becomes a, a guitar. If you think about it for more than two seconds, you start to go, what? But um, I think there's a lot of that in Def Leppard's past. I mean, I would love to do a deep dive on the On Through the Night album cover because none of that album cover makes sense. It's a truck in space with a giant guitar on the back. And I don't know how a truck is traveling through space. Well, well it, it, interestingly, um, through the Def Leppard community, I've met a, a gentleman called um, Dan Horner, and he's a, a graphic designer and he's a massive Def Leppard fan as well. And we're going to have an episode with him in the future because he's dying to talk about all of the album covers and Def Leppard art. And he's got real good knowledge about all of that. So um, we're going to have him on a future episode. So if you um, listen into that one or just a part of it on through the night, um, Dan might have um, might be able to tell you what um, the background behind that is. Oh, that'd be great. So, uh, but Rock of Ages was giant here. Um, I mean, we thought that it was giant until Hysteria came out and we saw how giant that, that Def Leppard could really be because like I was looking at Spotify today and I think um, Photograph has something like 25 million 
uh, listens and or streams, whatever they want to call it. And then you go and you look at pour some sugar on me. It's got four times that many. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a big gap between. I know you mean on Spotify and the popular um, mm-hmm. section. There's a quite there's a big gap between pour some sugar on me and then whatever the second thing is. I think the second one might be hysteria, but I think pour some sugar on me might be like mm. twice as many as as the second. I think it's got something like ridiculous, like it's like three figures of a million as opposed to double figures of a million, which I think is like the rest of them. Yeah, I think I think there are four songs on hysteria that far surpass anything on on uh, probably anything else that they've done, but. Um, but- Def Leppard were quite late to get onto all of the streaming services because they were having a um, wrangle with the record company. So they all of the Def Leppard stuff didn't actually come on to the streaming services until early 2018. It's only been on there for a few years. Mm, yeah. Well, it's it's doing well. And it's actually good for me because when I was working in sports, I lost track of Def Leppard for years. And, and so I'm not as familiar with a lot of their later output, um, that, that just sort of was released quietly when, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have time to go and, and discover it. So I'm discovering it now. So that's kind of fun. Um, coming under fire and I've got this written down. You've already mentioned it. I've got it written down as most underrated song on the album. By a mile, um, it's it's one of those songs where, in in if you go on Def Leppard forums or whatever, most like diehard Def Leppard fans that will be that will often top their most underrated um, Def Leppard song. You got me running on high and dry um, is often another one, but yeah, coming under fire is a brilliant one. And I don't know if you've I've never heard of him before, so apologies if he's really big in the states. I think he's a country singer, Matt Nathanson. Well, he like, released like a little EP called Pyromatia. And it's got covers of there's five or six like acoustic covers of him doing different Def Leppard songs, and he's obviously a big Def Leppard fan because he does like stage fights and coming under fire. He he mm-hmm. does ones that you know you wouldn't you wouldn't think to do, yeah. and his version of um, coming under fire is absolutely brilliant as well. And it's one of those where when you hear a song stripped down and done um, in a simple way, the the quality of the songwriting really shines through because you could take off all of the effects and the production and you're just left with the pure song and it's still absolutely brilliant. So that, that's something worth listening to. Yeah, great melody, great, uh, again, vocals and, and some of those vocals sort of um, layered a little bit on top of each other. And uh, this one actually went, it charted, it wasn't a single, but it charted number 24 on the mainstream rock chart here. Uh, Action Not Words follows that one went to number 42 on the mainstream rock chart. Again, this just kind of action, not words, is a, another song that's just kind of a rocking song. And, and it's the sequencing of the album makes it so that even though it's maybe not um, one of the strongest songs on this side, I think it just works perfectly between Coming Under Fire and, and Billy's Got a Gun. 
And again, exclamation point, action, exclamation point, not words. Yeah, I think that's that's considered by a lot of people to be like the weakest track on the album. It's Pyromania's version of something like Don't Shoot Shotgun or Run Riot or Excitable off Hysteria, where there's such high-level, popular, successful songs that, you know, no album's going to have like 10 like perfect um, songs on it. I've actually got a special place in my heart for action not words because you got to remember this is me when I was like 10 or 11 um, getting into it and it was for some reason there was something about the simplicity of those lyrics where it was the first song that I knew the lyrics from beginning to end um, I'm not going to sing them now for you Michael as you heard <laughs> um, earlier on I can't, I can't hold it at you at all but there's, there's still Def Leppard songs to this day that I've been listening to for 30 years. I still don't really know the words. I just make sounds. Well, yeah. actually, actually, not words. As a 10 or 11 year old, I knew every single word of that. Um, so it's got a special place in my heart because of that. Another movie tie-in song for them. A lot of yeah. the lyrics. Um, and then we close the album with Billy's Got a Gun. And this was the subject of Def Lep Pod uh, episode 11. Uh, it went to number 33 on the U.S. mainstream rock chart, another big cinematic track. And again, they knew how to end an album side. sound as you mentioned already you know billy's got a gun kind of came from death wish and you know it's it's very not just cinema but it's very american cinema yeah yeah it, it definitely evokes that um i might be wrong here and correct me if i was if i amble so if it, in the mid to late 70s it, it seemed to be a lot of american film, films that depicted new york and <laughs> In less than a flattering light, um, mm -hmm. should, should we say that, like that, reels as a like 
gritty, urban, dangerous uh, sort of city. And I think this song tries to evoke that sort of mood and that sort of um, that sort of feel. And I like this song because it's actually got a narrative to it. You can read the lyrics and it reads as a story. There's a, there's a few little bits where um, you know it it deviates from being a story. Uh, and there's a nice ambiguous ending where, like, you know, the gun goes off. Who's been shot? You know, has Billy shot someone? Has he been shot himself? Has he shot his gun but not shot someone? So there's a nice, there's a, there's a nice cliff, cliff, um, cliffhanger ending to the song. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's, a, it's got some, it's got really really good solo in as well. There's two solos in the song, um, and the outro solo in particular is uh, is just excellent. Yeah, can't can't you feel it in the air, or can you feel it in the air? That part, I love the way that they sing that, and yeah, it also reminded me of um, maybe Joe was listening to some Jimi Hendrix. It, it's got that sort of tie in to Hey Joe. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and you know where you where are you going with that gun in your hand kind of thing, <laughs> and because yeah, yeah. he says Billy, hey, why you got that gun? Yeah. Um, so there might be a tie in there, but a, 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 just a solid album closer. And it, it just brings the curtain down in another movie reference there, um, or at least a <laughs> cinema reference on 10 very, very strong songs. And, and one of the, the seminal albums of the eighties. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you ever listened past the end of Billy's got a gun where it's got like a strange, I was going to bring of, that up next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, so there's a strange thing at the end. I think some people would argue that that's not a good way to um, and <laughs> to end yeah. an album. I know people really hate that bit um, and sort of don't see the point in it. But it's going to your point. Yeah, a seminal album, definitely. Certainly um, in the States and even for UK Def Leppard fans, that would be um, a high watermark, definitely for um, Def Leppard. Me personally, it's my second favorite mm-hmm. um, Def Leppard album. And interestingly, if you compare it to, say, Hysteria, which is the obvious successful album i think that where you could argue it might not hit the heights of hysteria depending on taste as often what i would say is that outside of the hits the the lesser songs on pyromania for want of a better expression are of a better quality than the lesser songs on hysteria so i think there is an argument where where hysteria might have more big hitters Across the album, in terms of consistency, I think Pyromania is probably actually a more consistent album in terms of quality. I would agree with that. That's kind of the way I feel about it. I I think even the, as you mentioned, the low the the so called lesser songs I think hold up very well for me. And being a rock and you know being a rock guy, you know something like something like Action Not Words works really well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Don't Shoot Shotgun. Uh, earlier and that to me that that's one of my actual favorite songs off of uh, the hysteria album mm. so um i like some of those i didn't I, i'll be honest with you i know everybody loves pour some sugar on me i could go the rest of my life without hearing that song again um it's 
it's a good enough song, but I think it just got played so often that I'm I'm just burnt out on it a bit and and also I don't really want to think about pouring sugar on Joe Elliott. <laughs> well, you know, funnily enough, <laughs> you know one thing I never knew, and again, this might sound quite shocking to you, is so someone who's got a Daft Leopard podcast uh, should know this. Well, it wasn't really made apparent to me is that in America, you hear pour some sugar on me in non-musical settings as well. So it's often played, you know, in big sports arenas and, mm-hmm. and yeah. what have you. So it's not even just a case of, I mean, you can take any song in it, no matter how, no matter how much you love it, but if you hear it too much, after a while, a while it can breed a certain amount of contempt. And from <laughs> my, my understanding in the States is it, it's not even just like, it's on the radio all of the time. It's like, you know, if you go to the NFL or you go to the basketball or, or whatever it is, it's just played, every, you know, it's played everywhere. You go in an elevator, it's played, you're in the, you know, you're in Walmart, it's being played where I don't, I don't think it's, um, you probably only really hear it um, on a few, there's a couple of rock stations in the UK now that never used to be. So you might hear it now and again, like maybe like once every few weeks or if you listen to the album. So I think you were definitely bombarded with it. Um, a a lot more than we were (laughs) yeah that's probably fair to say it's probably fair to say anything uh you want to add to wrap up our discussion of pyromania we've i think we've covered uh all the songs but you've you've had much deeper dives into def leppard than i have so you know anything that sticks out about the making of it or or any of the stories that you've heard i I think the the main interesting things are probably a couple of things that i've already said in terms of i think it benefits from the influence of phil collin and Pete Willis, which you don't get in any other album. So therefore, you get a really unique set of influences and set of sounds um, merging in it. And I think that makes it quite unique. And what I would say as well, I think this is the song, this is the album, in my opinion, up of the first four, where they get the balance perfect between still being an out-and-out rock band and being able to um, attract, you know, rock fans, yeah, start to appeal to a pop audience as well. I know I know for a lot of people, High and Dry is, is like after High and Dry, they're not interested in it. And even Pyromania is a little bit uh, too poppy. But even though Hysteria is an album, probably for nostalgic reasons, because it's the album that got me into them, that I would still put as my favourite album. I mm. actually think Pyromania is the one where, they get the balance um, just right. So, yeah, le- less stories there for you, Michael, and probably just a couple of, like, opinions on why Pyromania stands out in, in their catalogue. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Neil, why don't we remind folks where they can find you on the internet? So they can find me on Twitter at, at DefLepPod. They can find me on Facebook at DefLepPodNeil, where I'm not pretending to be Def Leppard. And they can um, also find me on any podcast app if you just put in DefLepPod. There's not there's not with the Def Leppard podcasts out there that are regularly publishing um, episodes. So um, I, I should be the top of the list. Not because I'm better than anyone else. It's just because I'm the only one out there. <laughs> there you go. Well, maybe that's what makes you better than anyone else is you're actually doing one. <laughs> I, I, I like that take thank you yeah uh it's a very entertaining show Neil. i like it a lot i'm a def leppard fan i wouldn't say that i'm one of these super fans i'm not like a forum guy 
but I do enjoy the band and, and I do enjoy you know anything that really takes a deep dive into music that I like. So I think you do a great job with that. And I, I, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate your, um, your show. I hope a lot of people will go and listen to it. Your audience is probably much bigger than mine at this point. So, uh, but if I could even just turn one or two new people your way, then, then my job here uh, has been a success. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Very much appreciated. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.